Hello, you are now listening to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus Books, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com. If you'd like to support us, there's a number of ways you can do that. First, by checking out our books over at autofocuslit.com books, which is where you can also find a t-shirt with the logo for this podcast on it, which you can buy. You can also sign up for the newsletter, which is starting this year, over at autofocuslit.com email. You can also use the app you're on to rate the podcast or maybe write a quick review if you like it. And finally, of course, you can just tell some friends who you think might like the show. Okay, that's the advertisement. Here we go. Once again, welcome back. This is The Lives of Writers. Thanks for listening. I am the publisher of Autofocus Books and producer of this podcast, Michael Wheaton. Today's episode of The Lives of Writers is hosted by Jeff Alessandrelli. Jeff Alessandrelli is the author of several books, including the poetry collection Fur Not Light. His novel, And Yet, is being reissued this year by Future Tense Books. He is also the director and co-editor of The Small Presses, Phonograph Editions, and Bunny Press. Coming up very soon, you'll hear Jeff in conversation with Latasha N. Nevada Diggs. Latasha N. Nevada Diggs is a poet and sound artist. She is the author of the poetry collections Village, which is out last year from Coffeehouse Press, and Twerk, which is out in 2013 from Belladonna, in addition to three chapbooks. Her interdisciplinary work has been featured at the Museum of Modern Art, Brooklyn Museum, the Whitney Museum of American Art, and the Walker Art Center. All right, let's get to it. This is Jeff Alessandrelli's conversation with Latasha and Nevada Diggs. I am currently in Harlem, specifically East Harlem, El Barrio, between Park and Lexington on 117th, New York and City. <laughs> you are also from Harlem. Yes. Born and raised, 111th Street, between St. Nicholas and Adam Clayton, briefly up on 144th Street. Can't tell you much about that period because I was born around that time. But yeah, Harlem, 360. <laughs> and growing up in Harlem, I mean, you probably didn't. Th- did you envision as a child that you would be there so many years later. I mean, like I'm, I'm from Reno, Nevada, and mm-hmm. I like Reno. I guess you know sometimes people they just want to get out of their hometown. Um, I don't know if I was exactly like that, but I've moved around quite a bit. Like I've lived in Colorado, Oregon, now uh, California, Nebraska. I lived in Central New York for a little bit. Um, And I have no real aspirations, honestly, of kind of moving back to Reno, even though I like it fine. I mean, when you were younger, were you kind of like, this is it or I'm going to go all over and and never come back? I will say that 
I'm of that that straight out of Brooklyn, boys in the hood uh, generation where there was where we aspired to get the hell out of Harlem. Um, I, I don't th- no, no, I did not imagine myself here um, uh, to be here as long as I have. I have occasionally lived elsewhere. I've occasionally lived in Brooklyn. I've occasionally lived in the Bay Area. Um, I occasionally lived in in Brazil and Japan as part of residencies or going to grad school. I did not imagine myself to be here as long as I have. Um, home, I'm sure you can relate to when you talk about Nevada, is a love and hate thing, right? You're, you're born and raised there. You don't necessarily need to, need to stay here. That's not... <laughs> This is not this. It's it's okay. Your parents being from there, cool. But I don't I don't have to be here forever. I'm not one of those people like I'm going to live and die in Harlem. So I did not imagine that. I imagined that I would have been better adapted for the West Coast. When I was there, it didn't feel that way. It felt like it's cool, but there's something about the New York me that's not necessarily gelling with this Bay Area vibe. Even though folks from New York would would sense or speculate that I'm not from New York. And I'm like, no, I'm just an oddball New Yorker. Um, and there's plenty of us here. And so, yeah, I would not, no, no, I can imagine myself living in Brazil forever. Yeah. But I didn't, yeah, this was not a, this was not planned. It wasn't preordained. No. Um, <laughs> my, so my, fa- my dad's side of the family's from San Francisco. So I spent a lot of time there growing up and my cousin lives in Oakland right now. Um, sister lived in the mission mm-hmm. for many years. Um, now, when you were there, you they people that didn't think that you were kind of like a New Yorker either. Um, I think I think people, some people, got a notion that I was a New Yorker, um, and I think it was the Bay Area was interesting because my first year I was in Oakland, but I was not in the Oakland that I I like to say I should have been. Like if I was in the part of Oakland that everyone talks about as romanticizes as this place, as this community, which I didn't tap into until like my last two months living there in the West Coast, um, I might have stayed, right? Um, But I I wasn't connected to that community yet. And then my second year, which was in the Bay, which was over in San Fran, I loved the mission area. Um, it was also getting to this point where you got Silicon Valley that's just hiking up the rents. And so that you're, you have that mission, that old mission community, like the cultural center 
which I lived in, um, but everything around it disappearing. And I just knew that I wasn't going to be able to afford it. Why did you move out there initially? I went out there for grad school. I went out there to, for grad school and I went out there to get 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 out of New York. Um, it was finally, there was an opportunity. It was a, a, an opportunity of mixed feelings and a lot of angst. Um, but I had applied to grad schools. Um, and I purposely applied to grad schools all on the West Coast. Uh, purposely, because I I needed to get out of New York. I didn't feel New York was home for me anymore. I I also felt that I wasn't growing creatively. That there was something there was something that I needed, and it was it was not it was not in New York. It was no longer there. Um, I needed a change, and um, I purposely applied to various grad schools in the West Coast to try it out to see if the West the West Coast fit for me. And what what years were was this around, or what years? This was two thousand and six, two thousand eight. Okay, so fifteen, I guess, seven mm -hmm. years ago now. Um, now, mm -hmm. how did you really start kind of thinking of yourself as a writer? I mean, did you grow up with books in the household? I mean, did you grow up with kind of friends who were aspiring writers or was it something that you kind of no. came into your own? <laughs> it was, it was something I came into and it was something I came into that was encouraged by a friend of mine named Ricardo, who uh, is a writer and a brilliant visual artist in his own right. And we befriended each other um, when he was working at Tower Records, which was down on Broadway uh, near 8th Street you know, back in the nineties and we were pretty close and he had saw some poems that I was writing in a sketchbook um, because I had like the classic, you know, black hardcover sketchbook that every New York kid had who went, um, who aspired to be an artist, a visual artist. And I would write poems in there and he thought I could write music reviews. So it wasn't really a conversation about aspiring to be a poet. It was more of, you could write music reviews. And so the poems actually led me to writing music, being a freelance music writer for a short time, writing for The Source, writing for Vibe, writing for Herb Magazine, which was on the West Coast when it was around, um, writing for Eagle Trip. So I wrote music reviews in this kind of wacky way for a couple of years. I didn't know technically what I was doing in terms of like, I don't know how to write an essay properly or for damn. And, but I knew how to get around reviewing these albums 
in the way I heard music. So when that dried up, I also said to myself, I need to understand what I'm doing a little bit more. So I went back to school. I went back to school after dropping out of high school. Um, So I went and got my GED first, which then allowed me to go to Burma-Manhattan Community College, um, majored in liberal arts, got a lot of Ds in English before I managed to get a B. Um, uh, Just a lot of a lot of work, a lot of tears. Um, still not, I still wouldn't call myself an essayist, you know, but I mean, it was like, I went back to school to kind of figure out to, to, to improve, approve upon something that kind of started rather organically through, um, my friendship with a friend who thought I could do do it, but no, no, I mean, no frame of reference, no thought that that's what I would end up doing some 20 plus years later. So you, okay, the, the record reviews, I mean, were they longer? Were they shorter? Would it just depend? They were short. They were shorter. I mean, I, it's like, I, I tried to write a, a profile once. I remember uh, pitching to Vibe magazine uh, to, I believe the music editor uh, uh, was Rob Kenner, uh, pitching that I wanted to do a story on jungle music early on when jungle music was first getting some little plays. And, but no one still was like, what the fuck is this, right? Um, over, over on our, our side of the pond, right? And I went over to hang out in the UK with my brother um, and an old friend from the Bronx who had, you know, relocated there and were living there. And I pitched a story like, I want to do a profile on jungle music. I couldn't finish it. I didn't know how to finish it. I didn't know how to transcribe the interviews. I didn't know how, like, and I, you know, and I, I interviewed uh, some of the folks at that time. Um, but I was, <laughs> I, I could not get that story together. So it didn't happen. Um, so music reviews, yeah, I, I kind of could manage doing music reviews because of the word count restraint, right? Um, I was doing smaller reviews. So the reviews were maybe like 150 word reviews, 75 word reviews, maybe the most 300. Yeah, I never managed to get to that point of writing profiles where you get paid a word per word. But I did do I did do some smaller profiles like on Maxwell and Dion Farris. And I guess one of the things is from the get go, I mean, I don't know, I assume those have kind of like, you know, the corporate styles that they need, but did you see that you had a voice as it were, which isn't a word that I love, but I mean, what, were you discouraged kind of doing these things? Did you feel like you just needed to get going for money or was it, I don't know, how did it kind of develop? 
I mean, it, 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 it first developed for me, it first developed as play. It first developed as um, the music editors liked my, I, I sensed that they liked my sarcasm, that they liked my metaphors, right? That they, that they liked my playfulness, right? Despite my limitations with really, with structure, right? They could get around that because I had, I guess, a voice. I had something worthwhile. Um, but I, th- I also think that dried up to a point, right? Where it was just kind of like, I think regardless of how many analogies I can make up, um, if technically I'm not a good writer, I think an editor for one reason or another will soon tire of that. This is this is what I'm speculating, right? I don't know the the answer to that, um, um, because it was never a conversation. Um, I think there's some situations where a writer may be in- mentored by an editor, right, and say like, "Hey, you have a voice. This is what you need to need to go back to the workshop and work on," right? Um, that wasn't necessarily the case for me. Um, yeah, I just wasn't getting to the, the assignments. And yeah, some, I mean, a part of it, there was the fun, there was the play. And there was also like the thing of like, I I mean, I I did use those little $75, $150 you know, per review for, for bills too. I mean, it, it was an income, you know? Um, and also, I think also in hindsight, I think also, I didn't know how to ask for help. Right. So when, when there was no, when, when, you know, when editors stopped calling you um, and 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 I mean, and that eventually happens, and you have to go. You have to ask yourself, well, what's what what what's? Let me look at my work and see what's what's going on, right? But I also knew the thing is, it's not like I didn't know. I mean, I'm someone who's who did not graduate from high school. I I am someone who is not very good with my English classes in high school. I'm someone um, where the English teacher actually saw me cutting class outside and literally walked up to me and said, you're not going to amount to anything. Like, that's what he said. (laughs) You know, so I'm like, you know, and you, you have, so you have that regardless of like, who I am now, you know, there's still that, like, that prophet, that, that teacher, that high school teacher in my head saying, saying that to myself. And so 
yeah so i think there were things are i think those there there was things like that where it was kind of like also i kind of like walked away from it with my tail behind my legs because it was just like i don't know what i'm doing and i have to figure it out on my own Mm -hmm. right and i guess when that stuff dried up and when you were thinking about mfa programs i mean i guess by then you had put together some type of little poetry kind of portfolio and we're thinking i assume a little bit more seriously about how kind of play can be interwoven oh yeah poetry i mean by then were you kind of you know were you in touch with folks that i mean were you reading more poets were you in touch with you know, contemporary folks who you were reading? I mean, how had it kind of blossomed by then, by the time you were applying? Um, by the time I was applying, oh yeah, definitely. Um, uh, but even prior to that, because, you know, I talk about Ricardo um, really being the one who pushed me forward with writing, with writing, and really kind of writing the mu- music reviews that I wrote back then. Um, later on, um, part of that was being part of the new New York spoken word community, one of varied communities in New York, not just the one, but one of them, one in several of them. And then, um, my ties and friendship to a writer named Tony Medina, who was, who is not a, you know, someone coming out of the spoken word community. He's a writer and he's a reader. Um, and for, for more or less, he became, uh, someone who was encouraging a lot of folks at that time to continue reading, to write, and also to read. The importance of reading was at the top of the list for him. And so it was either going with him to bookstores and being introduced to different types of writers in that manner, right? Or going to his crib, which, you know, could be turned into a full-on workshop in itself and reading books from his bookcase because he wasn't going to loan you any books, right? You aren't going to walk out of his house with any books borrowed from, no. If you're going to read them, you're going to read them there in his living room on his couch, right? Um, and, and if he, and if he was going to read your poems, you were going to read he was going to read your poems at his house. In many ways, a, 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 a number of those folks during that time, our first editor was Tony Medina, you know, because he, you, he was the one you could trust to read your work to who, who actually could say something about it, you know, that made sense. I don't think a lot of us shared our work with each other. Some of us did, but not a lot. You know, um, but also our level of critique was, you know, mm, that's deep, <laughs> you know, to mm, interesting. So it was like 
what is the difference between deep and interesting and what exactly does that mean, right? I don't think a lot of us had those chops yet, right? Especially if we were not coming from a writer program. Um, For me, especially me, because I didn't even think of myself as a writer. I didn't even imagine myself as a writer. Even then, you just thought you were playing around. Then I'm, 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 I'm giving myself some serious now, right? Then I'm giving, I'm giving myself some serious now, seriousness now because, okay, I've, I've plateaued with the the writing the music reviews. I've plateaued because I'm not getting any assignments, right? I've plateaued um, with where am I going, right? With like, like, where am I going and what am I to be? Um, And I'm also working either in a sandwich shop or I'm working in a coffee shop or... You know, and this is also to go back to go back further in the timeline. I'm also not dancing, right? Because part of my income was as a dancer. So, and as a dancer, when I plateaued with the dancing, I'm writing music reviews. And when I'm plateauing with the music reviews, then I'm working at a clothing store. I'm working at a sandwich shop. I'm working at a coffee shop. You know, I'm 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 doing I'm doing retail. Um, and then after work, I'm either hanging out at uh, my friend's studio, which was down in the below Wall Street area where Ergasms was um, released. Ergasms was the spoken word album and and it was a compilation of folks during that time. It's just, yeah, floating, floating and saying like, okay, is this going to be it? I think this is going to be it. And then it's it's like, okay, I got to get back in school. So yeah, I'm starting to take myself serious. And then you apply to programs. Which one did you end up going to? Well, the first one I went to was, I was like, I was at BMCC, right? We're still taught, we're still in the 90s, right? So I'm at okay. B- BMCC. I'm at BMCC. I'm majoring in the liberal arts, right? Majoring in liberal arts, thinking uh, towards the end of that, that, Maybe I'm good at history because I'm 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 feeling this, right? I'm feeling this, you know, this whole like ethnic studies department. I'm like, I'm just sucking up all of these courses. Or maybe I'm a teacher, right? There's a lot of like shifts. And I do do an honors in poetry and I do um the the books that I was assigned in um, when I was at BMCC were um, a book by Martina Spada and a book by Rita Dove. 
far from how my work now, right? Like, it's just kind of like, what? Um, and yeah, so being introduced to their work, to their work during this, and then eventually talking about jazz poetry with my English professor, who I felt was my favorite English professor because he was the one who was failing me. Um, he was my favorite professor because he was honest. You know, he was my favorite professor because he told me that um, I don't know how to use the thesaurus, and which was real. It was true. I had a thesaurus, but I didn't exactly know, you know, how to use it. Um, he he made me work. Um, he he made he genuinely made me work um and um he made me pursue that tutor outside of school who then ended up being the music producer and rapper Mike Ladd he was working in the English department at LAU in their um in their tutoring program right so he was my tutor. So you so you graduate from BMCC? Yeah. And then uh, do you apply to MFAs right after that? No, or you take some time no, off? I take some time off, and then I go to NYU School of Education. I, I've talked with other people for this show who were very kind of uh, undergrad MFA teaching job, you know, like publish some books. Um, and I'm not deriding them, but like it was a little more cookie cutter. I don't know how else to say it, you know, and you were trying out different things. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, also there was a, you know, there was a question of, I think for me coming from where I'm coming from, okay, if I'm going to NYU now, right, okay, I've, I've made up for my years of absence, for my years of dropping out of high school, I've made up for the, you know, not so glamorous GED score, yet enough for me to uh, enter a two-year associate's program, which is kind of like a makeover for what, what I wasn't what I was not able to um, grasp in high school. Okay, I've made up for all of those things. Now I'm at NYU and I'm doing an undergraduate in education, which I'm not going to say it was a mistake because it's, it is what it is and I'm paying the student loans still for that. Um, I call it the degree for my mom. Um, I call it the degree where like she gets to go to the graduation and say she has a daughter who's graduated college. Um, that could have ended at BMCC. Um, I took it further to NYU. The NYU program offered a partial scholarship, um, which was awesome. But the partial art um, scholarship had to do with recruiting um, students to enter into education. So to pursue a degree 
in education and to eventually work for the Board of Education as either a high school student teacher or a junior high school teacher, which is the case, secondary education, junior high, high school. In history, Hmm. I thought that in pursuing this degree at NYU, an education degree in history at NYU would allow me to study with professors that I knew were there that I really wanted to study with, like Robin D.G. Kelly, Trisha Rose, uh, Kamal Brathwaite. Like I was like, my plan was like, I'm, I'm going to be studying with all of these professors. Right. And the reality was, uh, I am not because I had literally taken every Caribbean, African, Puerto Rican studies class offered in ethnic studies at BMCC that basically uh, counted for all of those specialized courses at NYU. So because, and do you get what I'm saying? Because I had taken all of these kind of like black and brown study courses at BMCC, I was not allowed to take any more black and brown studies <laughs> courses yeah. at NYU, yeah. which was whack. Which was electives. Yeah, it yeah. Was yeah. Whack. It was whack. And like, what am I here for? I'm here to take these classes with these folks, right? And they're like, no, you can't. Your 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 major does not allow you to. Um, and, and I got away with taking two. I got away with managing to take a class with Kamal Brathway, which really changed a lot of stuff for me in thinking about literature, in thinking about women's literature, in thinking about Caribbean women's literature. Um, and and I, I got to take a course with uh, Kelly, which allowed me to look even further at uh, Amy Cesaire's work and to look at, you know, all of these other things, but I wasn't, al- and that was it, you know? And and the, the, the saving grace was that I hadn't taken anything in the, in the areas of Asian studies. So I lucked out. Um, with taking courses with uh, Professor Rebecca Carl, and then eventually Professor Marilyn Young in uh, East Asian studies, primarily China, and um, a course on colonialism and imperialism. Um, These courses allowed me to understand world history in a way that, was easier for me, right? Like for me, being forced to take a European history class didn't work, right? And I mean, it just didn't work. 
it didn't, I mean, and it was like, so I go from really excelling at BMCC to downright fucking um, barely getting my degree at NYU because all of a sudden it's, it's like what I'm having to learn and how I'm having to learn it is not working. Um, and it's also not working because, you know, of external things off the campus, but on campus, you know, I'm having my, I'm having my insecurities with being an older student. Um, by the time I'm entering undergraduate at, at NYU, I'm turning 30 and my cohort are 18 year olds. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's hard. It's a hard thing to manage. It's a hard, it's a hard way of switching the mind. And also here's the thing. I'm still, still grappling with the essay. I'm still writing the way my head understands things. And to her credit, um, and, and, and I'm sure she's like, this one, this child keeps on taking classes with me. To her credit, Pre Professor Rebecca Carl finally got, got it. She was like, she does not, she is not an academic, right? But she gets this and she understands this. Her lens, the way her brain works in processing this is different from my brain. And it's just like, and that's that's when every that's when it fit. That's when it clicked. With that's, her guidance, kind of? With her guidance. With her guidance. Yeah. Yeah. So by the time you get to MFA school, mm -hmm. what what school is that at? This is this is California College of the Arts, which is in the Bay Area. Okay. It, yeah, it used to be California College of Arts and Crafts, but then they wanted then they wanted to be more contemporary, so they dropped the crafts. Um, so by the time you got there, and I mean, you know, your your first book came out in twenty thirteen. Twerk. Mm -hmm. Were you like in sync then? That, you know, most, again, most kind of MFA students, they want to put together their thesis manuscripts so they can get it published so they can kind of like get to that next rung on the ladder. Is that where your head was at or were you still kind of like just trying out this is something that I'm doing, but I'm not mm -hmm. kind of thinking on a professional level? No, no. I mean, when I enter uh, California College of the Arts, I am at this point where it's it's like, okay, we can say I'm pseudo-professional and I need to get my act together and make this happen. So when I'm there, I know I am there to improve upon my understanding of poetics, to read, to write, to um, to walk out of there as a stronger poet. And to also, God willing, walk out of there with a manuscript. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 full I'm I'm full on there, right? I'm not there to say, like, 
oh, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to write stuff to be reviewed, to be in Paris Review or the New Yorker. Never, I never get to that. I never get to that point. And I'm still at, not at that point. And, and I think, I think that's awesome that I'm not at that. I, I've never been at that point. Um, but I am very, very like change is now, right? Change focus is now like it's, it's, it's now or nothing. Right. Yeah. And so was that a two year program or three? Two year program. And then at the, I mean, did you get good feedback from your, I guess, peers? Did people know what to do with your work? Were some people just like, I don't know what exactly you were writing at that time, but we're, I guess I've, you know, I also, I don't, I don't have an MFA, but I have an MA and, you know, some of those workshops, they're very helpful and others people, they're just all kind of basing it on their own, I guess, you know, kind of the word. Like you mentioned, read a dub before. They love read a dub. They see one of your poems and they're like, eh, not so much. I'm not slagging read a dub or anything. But Mm -hmm. um, did that, was that beneficial to you as a writer, kind of being able to see how people were responding to your work and doing the thing that they didn't like even more because that was kind of who you were or or pulling back? I mean, it it was helpful. It was helpful, I think. I, but I think what was more helpful to me during grad school were not necessarily the workshops. The workshops are workshops, and the workshops is a cohort of bodies that are coming from different programs who think about writing in very different ways, and. I would say that I didn't necessarily find my my buddies in the workshop, mm-hmm. right? I um, I definitely found my buddies um, in the Cave Canem environment, not so much in the grad school workshop. What I did find, I found some amazing readers of my work who could look at my work and say, hey, I think you should check out the work of so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Not to mimic, but to, all, to look at and think about how you might be in a similar conversation aesthetically, thematically, sonically, you know. And Mm -hmm. that was Kathleen Frazier and Brian Teer. Again, two very different poets from me, right? Um, Brian Teer tickled me um, and he tickled everybody. He was recommended (laughs) to me by Kathleen. Kathleen, is was brilliant as a reader. I mean, her work is incredible, you know, her as a reader of your work was mind boggling. She would read my work, which were early poems, some of them earlier versions of things that would eventually be in twerk or in village, right? 
And she would be able to see something and hear something and say, you either you need to continue this or there's a series here, there's a book here, right? Because mm -hmm. it's something you're investigating that hasn't been investigated before. And are say, I want you to check out this person's work and tell me what you think. And it would and it would always and I would always come back like, oh, I needed to read this, right? Like it was just kind of like not much. And um, and so yeah, she was generous with her time and she was generous with her brain. Brian, who's a an incredible writer, he's also someone devoted to criticism, to literary theory. And so he what he implants is a kind of is like a history, a timeline of writers who also write about theory, who also write about process and aesthetics. Not just writers who write the poem and then they ain't gonna tell you anything about <laughs> anything about anything, right? They have like they they're they're quite aware of what they're doing and they can lay out to you what 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 they're doing and what this stems from. And so he and his readers and his um, compiling of articles and essays and work that we should be reading, particular movements, particular generations, whether it be first wave or third wave feminism or black art movement or, you know, um, or even Kamal Brathwaite and Nathaniel Mackey um, are, you know, it's, it's, I read the most with, 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 through their encouragement. I also read a lot through the encouragement of Donna LaPierre and um, Opal Apamadisa, who had me thinking about speculative fiction, which it's something, mm -hmm. I've attempted uh, that, you know, I, I still want to venture towards again, you know, because there's some books in the class that we were assigned that really sparked curiosity. And it was also interesting in Opal's class because there was a clear tension between the body of work she was assigning versus what some students felt were not worthwhile text and what they felt she should have assigned. Um, so I would say during grad school, when it became more of, this is my choice. This is, this is I, if I'm gonna be this, I'm gonna be this and I'm in it, I was, this is this is this is how it worked for me. So your first book, Twerk, came out in, in 2013. So still a couple of years after you graduated from. Uh, 
University College of, or what is, say it again? <laughs> California College of the Arts. <laughs> California College of the Arts. Um, and, you know, I first came, I think I encountered twerk in maybe 2015, maybe 2014. And I have two copies of it. And, you know, the, the first one that I have is second printing. The, the other one that I have is a fifth printing. Mm-hmm. So your you know your first book for a small press poetry collection um it did really really well. Yeah. Um and I guess I'm curious you know I know you had some chat books prior to the publication of Twerk but like what was the process I guess of kind of both getting the book in the world and also you know you you did try out you know you you did different things from history, what have you. I mean, to see it kind of um, really make a, a splash, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. What was what was that like for you? I mean, did you feel like you had a lot of affirmation? Did it feel like I'm on to the next thing? Or how did that kind of go? It was a surprise. It was a like, it was, it was a what the fuck, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Carolyn Micklem, um, the late Carolyn Micklem, we had lunch once and this was prior to, this was after I graduated from California College of the Arts. I'm back in New York, we meet up, we have lunch. I have this thesis, which is to me, my first, pretty much complete manuscript. I'm still not understanding what is a manuscript. Let's just say this is what I have. And I'm, I'm hoping, I'm even betting that this would be it. Because it's also a very different, very calm, very safe manuscript. Like this, this, this is publishable. Mm -hmm. and we have we sit down we have lunch we catch up and her attitude her thoughts her advice was just get the first book out whatever it is right it doesn't it doesn't need to win anything it doesn't need to be this all godly like masterpiece just whatever it is whatever it is Get the first book out, right? Like that's the attitude. Um, Donna de la Pierre, uh, her advice when I'm graduating is it's okay if your first first book comes out in your 40s. And I needed to hear that um, because a lot of folks at that time who were younger than me, they're all gambling on that book to come out in their, you know, that first book to come out in their twenties, because like you said, there are folks who do the timeline, right? Like they, this is, this is, this is what they've always wanted to be from jump, right? Like they know what they want it to be. They know what they want to be. They know what they are becoming. And so everything is in order. Um, my, my, my stuff has always been out of order, always been late. You know, um, what Donna is sharing is that the life of the writer 
doesn't necessarily occur at an earlier age. Sometimes a writer's career happens later and that's okay. Um, and there's plenty of examples of that. Um, so I come back home thinking, this is, this is it. I'm not going to stress things. Secretly I am. And with twerk, it was really through the generosity of Rachel Levinsky at Belladonna inviting me to center something. And what I center, which was 20 pages of that thesis project and 20 pages of something that I was calling something else and 20 pages of another thing and her picking which one, which would eventually become twerk. And that's, that's how it happened. And, it, and I mean, and it also happened at a point in which I'm back home, I've been back since 20, 2008. Nothing is really popping at all, right? Um, I'm sending this other manuscript, this thesis out, thinking that this is the one. It's not getting any buzz, it's not getting, it's flatlining. Some folks are not even sending feedback. You know, somebody, you know, some, you know, uh, a publisher invited me to submit it. I submitted it and I didn't hear back at all, you know, on two different manuscript projects. So my attitude is like, well, maybe I'm not meant to have a book. Um, maybe this is just not like, maybe this is not it, right? Maybe this little excursion into literature um, still is, is, not, is not for me. Maybe I still need to figure out what am I? What am I gonna do? Not that late though. So that's pretty late, okay. I mean, you're sending stuff out, but you're still like, maybe this is, this is not my path. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm second guessing because I mean, the thing is nobody is, nobody is biting. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's like, what am I going to do? You know, it's, it's just like, I'll, you know, I'll just continue to work at, you know, at the jobs that I'm working at. But I'll also, it's just kind of like, maybe it's just, maybe I'm just, that's it, you know? Um, so when Rachel approaches me, I'm kind of cynical at this point. I'm kind of pessimistic, you know, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and and she 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 chooses twerk and twerk goes through a radical transformation a radical transformation a lot of love a lot of care with uh in coming from me coming from my editor Kara Benson at the time coming from the whole Belladonna crew right and then boom it's like whoa yeah. you know didn't didn't see that coming and were you i mean were you pretty elated yeah yeah i'm quite um yeah no i'm quite happy and i'm and, and i'm quite like giddy about it um i'm also you know 
I mean, part of me wants it to succeed because it's so, um, part of it is like not giving a fuck. And then a part of it is just mm-hmm. like, this title is so funny. I have to, I have to, I have to be, I have to be silly about this, right? So, I mean, there is a concerted effort to make sure that this book sells, right? And when it sold out of that first print, we were like, whoa, (laughs) you know, it was just like, whoa, whoa, right? And and I was, I, you know, a, a little bit of the hustler, you know, you know, back of the, you know, you know, the car trunk, you know, gene activated. And it was just like, oh, let's see if we can sell another, you know. So we it's like we we made it happen. We made it happen. And um and it was it's nice. It's nice, you know, it didn't uh Belladonna being what Belladonna is largely run but volunteer run, run with not a lot of money, um, not a lot of infrastructure or the types of, you know, departments and assignments that um, other publishers may have. You know, we knew, we knew that, and we understood that, like, it's like, okay, we don't have any money to enter it into this and that and that and that competition it it wasn't it wasn't particularly it wasn't it wasn't a concern i will say um we could have made it a concern we could have took a chance we didn't and i don't th- and i don't think any of us was necessarily thinking about that um and it did good it did good on its own yeah mm-hmm. um and did that start with residencies? Did that start with other things that kind of like, you know, I think you're you're still immersed in to a certain degree? I would say with the residencies now, I'm not so much immersed in because I'm tired. <laughs> um, also, it's like I want to take a break and I want to be absolutely ready to pursue residencies again. During that time, and we're talking after grad school, yes, I was applying left and right for different residencies. Um, I believed at that moment, one, it would make my resume look sexy, um, (laughs) which it does. Um, also it would afford me the opportunities to leave New York. I think also I'm someone where, um, New York is my home, but also New York tires me. So I am so game for a plane ticket anywhere, anytime, um, get me out of New York so I could spend a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months. And then I come back to New York, like, I'm ready, I'm back. And, um, and I love those residencies for the, for those opportunities. And, um, but also I understood it as it's, it's part of this, this whole thing, this whole, um, ecosystem, right. To apply to residencies, 
especially visual artists, right? Where it's like the nomad life is really visual artists with residencies that you can live everywhere and not even have an apartment of your own. Um, just living off of residencies, right. you know, depending just go on- go from residency to residency, yeah. Just go from residency. And I knew some artists, I knew some visual artists that were straight up doing that. And it was like, man, this is wild. Um, but the, the level of work, of administrative work that you have to do for yourself to do that is, 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 is real like i mean you're you're not only dedicating a certain amount of hours to your studio to do work you're also saying i'm going to dedicate a certain amount of hours per week to just strictly applications and project proposals and and this and that and that all of this stuff which is a whole other language right it's a whole it's a job yeah. it's a job it's a job. It is a job. It is no longer. So the thing is, it's like you are no longer working in a sandwich shop, a bookstore or anything. This is your job. Right. And right. Um, I plateaued when I realized that, like, uh, when I got to the point where it's like I am tapped out of like what project idea I can propose for this one. I think there's there are artists that are skilled in time management and skilled in their creativity where they are masters of jumping from one project to the next and completing each project successfully, right? I'm not one of those. And if I'm looking at all of these residencies and I got residency back to back to back to back and every one of them, I'm supposed to be doing something different. How the hell am I finishing one, right? Like I said, some people are really good at that. I'm not good at that. And so for me, I'm feeling a level of guilt, which I shouldn't, but I am, you know, cause it's, I'm me where I'm like, I need to finish this project before I do something else, right? Um, right? Or I apply to something else that's requiring me to to propose a completely different project. If I can go to a residency and con continue developing the project that I'm working on, awesome. If I have to start on something completely different, I'm just not bothering with it, you know, which is, and I think, there's a point where you you do plateau, um, and it, and if you're not that stringent, if you're not that stringent of an individual, um, yeah, like I don't like that feeling. That's that's just period of half-assing it. Yeah, I don't like that feeling of half-assing it, and I also feel like give somebody else this opportunity. Sure. Right. Yeah, well, somebody. Yeah, a lot no, of people aren't like that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I. I mean, I. I. But I. I genuinely am that person. I'm like, no. For right now, I'm good. Or for right now, I'm tapped out. Let somebody else apply to this. You know, when I am mm -hmm. rejuvenated, when I am inspired, right? 
when I am feeling strong about something, I will pursue this, right? If I am on the fence of something and I apply to it and I get it, then I'm going to struggle. So I'm, I'm listening to my gut. I'm listening to my gut as to when to apply and when not to apply. Some people are like, well, you apply to everything all the time. Yeah, I've done that. I've done that. And I'm like, you know, I don't have to do it. I don't have to do it all the time. It would make sense for me financially um, to do some things, but this ain't, this, this, this ain't, this ain't it. That's not a life. Yeah. That's, that's, that's not a life. That's not a life. Yeah. Um, well, coming, uh, I guess then, to the new book and, uh, you know, and, and Village, it, it, you know, it came out a decade after Twerk, you know, I mean, kind of talking through again that cookie cutter mode where you have one book and then, you know, three years later, you have another book and then you apply for tenure and you do like all these things. I mean, you know, we, we do live in a world, I think, with social media and what have you, where Folks just, you know, if you published your book, you know, your book came out two and a half years ago. It's like, oh, gosh, you got to get on the next thing. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, you took it a decade and I know some of the material is kind of, you know, it, it, it you, you, you wrote me before. said so Village was originally written in 2007, 2008. It went through a complete rewrite and compost process. Um you know, and you're working with a bigger publisher now. I think you have a, a bigger platform. I mean, are your expectations or were your expectations different for this book? And now that it's, you know, it came, it's almost a year on from the publication. Do you feel happy with kind of, you know, what arrived out into the world? I feel, mm, well, Village, Village um, is that, is that thesis project, right? That I mentioned earlier, right? That's the one that I thought would have been the one, but it wasn't the one. And so it goes through all of these changes and moments of avoidance and reentry and composting and all of that stuff. Um, and it, it's published via Coffee House which is a publisher that has a little bit more infrastructure than Belladonna. It is not Random House, right? It's not Penguin. It's Coffee House. It's still mm -hmm. a small publisher with a rich 50 plus year history that has an office and has, you know, has a little bit more than Belladonna, right? Everything is not volunteer. Everything, you know, they they have they have some folks. And I'm still waiting to see. I'm still waiting to see what the results, you know, the results are not fully in. I think, um, and they're not fully in, not because I'm unhappy or dissatisfied with something. I think uh, Coffee House had some hiccups, had some challenges recently. Um, 
there were some changes of leadership and staff personnel and they're coming out of that now and to their credit working with them working with them right now has been nice it's been it's been wonderful i'm also understanding that um previous coffee house authors some more veteran with a longer relationship with coffee house they have a different experience they have a different experience as to what what goes what doesn't go i'm mm -hmm. still relatively learning exactly what happens and what doesn't happen you know and yeah. and, and, that, and that's and that largely has to do with some of the hiccups that they had um that were internal um um with with the press with the house and they had to smooth out those hiccups and so they're in the smoothing out process right now they're still following this um calendar system which is fascinating to me because it's also like looking at publishers that publish a certain amount of books annually but also have them on these seasonal releases right you got your spring you got your summer you got your winter release and just the number of books that are published each season is fucking daunting to me right and it's it's daunting because it's it's like there's still a small publisher so one can imagine what someone at a larger publication like just the amount of books that are published just and i mean and just that the amount of books that are published per season right and i'm like how does anybody's book get any attention um and yeah uh yeah i mean honestly and so i'm still i'm still waiting on someone to review it thoroughly there have been some mini reviews which have been wonderful um and i'm really appreciative of those i am still waiting for the review review i'm still waiting on that longer review and um some older writers have assured me that why there's likely some delay in seeing that has to do with the complexity of the book that it is it's not a book you could swallow whole in one night. I mean, I don't know. You tell me. I was just saying that it isn't like you sit down and read it in a night and move on. I mean, there's the archival work. There's the, the family relationship in terms of that archival work. There's the, the sonics. There's the multiple languages. Um, you know, and these are some of these things were inch work, but also I do think it expands upon them. But, you know, it's it's not a book, 
it's a book that simultaneously asks nothing of its reader and asks a lot of them. And, you know, like, I, I can't lie. I mean, sometimes reviews, you wrote them at the beginning of your career. They can't really kind of like encapsulate it in, you know, whatever, your, your 350 word Publishers Weekly kind of mm-hmm. review. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a book that I did find very powerful, um, you know, particularly in, I guess, your willingness to... I guess in both language, but also in kind of how that language is being transfigured in terms of the archival to, to deal with some of this stuff that, you know, another person might write a couple of sonnets and that's it. You know, I mean, this, it's a hard book in a lot of ways. And like, I've worked a little bit in my own work with, I wrote about my grandfather's World War II diary last year. And, you know, he fought in World War II, kind of thinking through that. He was Italian. Well, he was an Italian and then Italian-American. But it's not easy to tease out what you think about these things um, when you get to the page. And things do change. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I do think it's a complicated but kind of necessary text. Mm -hmm. And I can only imagine what writing it would take, too. Yeah. 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 So... So, yes, yeah, so I'm still waiting. I'm waiting, but I'm also, I'm waiting and I'm not waiting. I'm relying on some of the advice I got before twerk, which is just get the book out. Don't worry. Don't think about it much, that it is a book and that it is out that you accomplished that. You accomplished alone to have completed the book and released the book. Um, anything else is icing. Anything else is a supplement, right? Don't be concerned with oncolates, right? Should they come or not come? A part of me initially wanted to was because I'm also thinking, well, it's being published by Coffee House. This is presumably, presumably a better platform, right? They have better infrastructure. Bigger press, yeah. Right? It'll get it'll it'll it more eyes will see it because it is on Coffee House than it was on Belladonna. You know, I'm still waiting. I don't know yet. And also also taking into consideration the advice that uh, there was a woman who led, facilitated a workshop, I think it was on publicity or marketing, who worked at Grey Wolf and this was around the time of twerk because it is poetry it's not fiction it's not nonfiction. it's poetry generally tends to have a smaller readership right than fiction or nonfiction. um tends to have a smaller readership of reviewers than than prose that because because it is that the timeline is going to be a little bit longer 
to see what a book of poem does. Um, we can focus on the initial publication date, the initial publicity, the marketing, the machine that gets it out there the first and second month. We can look at where it gets reviewed that first and second month, right? Um, some writers are fortunate to have reviews released like BAM, right? Some, some writers are fortunate to be good enough with their editing skills where they finish a manuscript and submit it to their publishers a year before publication date. Therefore, they have that, you know, that, that timeline of like generating the hype around it before its publication date. Very different in my scenario. Um, I wasn't concerned about the hype before the book. I was concerned with, I write slow, my eyes are not pristine and I need time. And I'm still sussing out this thing that I wrote um, and making it feel comfortable to me, making the book me, making the book, how would Latasha write this? Well, Latasha would write it this way, right? And, and committing to that, right? Because I think the earlier version, the grad school version, it was one way of how Latasha would write it, but it was also largely, this is how Latasha would write about this, attempting to get this sort of readership or to get these particular eyes on it because she thinks this is what people would prefer to read from her. And in this final version, it ain't about them at all. It's about how Latasha would write this. How, how would Latasha write about these things that are very personal some disturbing, some not disturbing. How would Latasha write about contemplation and age and erasure and displacement in Harlem and, and coming of age in Harlem, a Harlem that is not glamorized. At the same time, it is not um, made into a monster. Sure. It's true to the actuality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is hard to do too. Um, what do you have coming up next? I mean, you're still in the midst of this. You're waiting for the review, but just to kind of end, do you, have you already conceptualized? It was a decade before, you know, twerk and village, but I mean, I think you got a lot of living going on during that time period too. You've taken your own path. Do you, hope to have you know another project out in three years or you just kind of seen <laughs> where things are at what where, where where are you with the next thing are you just focusing on this one for now well where i am with this next thing i'm like the baby has been born the baby is how many months now baby was born in february so so the baby is like nine months old 
um which is damn i mean that's kind of like shit this baby is nine months old <laughs> you know, it's right. just like oh damn you know um so the baby baby either should be walking or is about to walk right and i need to see i need to see well actually baby is not walking yet Baby's not walking yet because it, it 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 doesn't have a solid review yet. It doesn't have a full review. Um, I know people are talking about it. This baby has to has to start walking, um, and I need to wait for this baby to walk to take a couple of steps. Um, in order to think about the next manuscript. Now, the next manuscript, um, yeah, maybe I will try not to have it released in another decade. <laughs> um, it's to be decided. I mean, I think um, there's a lot on my plate in terms of personal stuff that I think is far more important than a, a third book. Um, life stuff. Um, I started a webinar series. I don't know if you saw it. And the webinar series is tied to the book called Out of Order. Um, wow. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. It started, um, this week was the second week. So the webinar series is conversations that are tied to the book. They're conversations with experts in fields outside of poetry. So the first session was on financial literacy, right? Because that's something that's touched upon in the book, right? The lack of financial understanding, generational poverty and stuff like that, right? Um, and and we, we talked about the rudiments of, you know, personal finances, understanding um, budgeting, right? Not, you know, not just, not the, not the financial literacy workshops that I have been involved with that assume you have a job with a 401k, right? Um, if you, if you are a if you are a artist working in the gig economy, how exactly are you saving, right? What are you saving? You know, that's what I want to talk about, right? Because that's, that's really been my life, right? Aside from the little side jobs, my life has been as a gigging artist, whether it's working as a singer for a band, working as a musician in a band, working as a work for hire poet that writes a poem for some musician for their album, you know, session work. Um, sure. How do you know, like, do we know these things? And also it's just like, um, where I'm coming from, where some folks are coming from, our parents may not know what, how to budget how to do this, how to do that, because they all, they don't come from that, right? So it's like generations after generations of folks just kind of like, they, they manage, 
you know, but they just manage, right? And it's just kind of like, how can we be a little bit better? How can we help each other? How can we buddy up? So that was the first session. The session this week was on mental health, right? So we looked at trauma. We looked at early childhood trauma. We looked at generational trauma. We looked at how trauma manifests, right, itself. What are the behaviors? Um, and so my conversation was with a mental health expert, a therapist, not my therapist. But we thought, you know, we talked about things. We talked about access to therapy, the, the um, access to therapy uh, and the limitations, of, not the limitations of therapy, but access and also because somebody posed a really solid question about the lack of Black male therapists um, within that um, workforce and, and the, the, um, the need for Black male therapists for Black men, right? Um, black and brown men. And so we talked, we, thought, we talked about mental health. So the next session is going to be on wills and estates and trust. And so that expert is a lawyer whose specialty is wills and trust. And his specialty is he's an antiquarian bookseller. So he knows about literary estates. And so we're going to get into that. And we're getting into that because it's also, this is a conversation that happens a lot that I've heard a lot for 10 years now. Um, um, the estates of writers, um, the instructions, the end of life instructions. And then the last one is on menopause. So real talk, real talk shit. All right, that was Jeff Alessandrelli's conversation with Natasha and Nevada Diggs. You can check out Village, the new poetry collection from Coffeehouse Press, wherever you buy books. And the new reissue of Jeff's novel, And Yet, is available for pre-order over at FutureTenseBooks.com. And if you're interested in doing a little more listening today, you can check out my interview with Jeff about that novel on this very podcast. That was episode 88. And once again, if you're interested in checking out what Autofocus Books is up to, you can do that over at autofocuslit.com books. And while you're there, you'll see a t-shirt for the podcast. And that's a great way to support the press and the show. Okay. If you want to rate it, go ahead and rate it. If you want to review it, go ahead and review it. Other than that, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.